Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to the Loving Liberty program slash podcast slash truth bomb. Oh, wait, man, I probably shouldn't say that. The next time I go to fly, somebody's going to want to take a much closer look. What's this? Uh, you say you specialize in truth bombs. Actually, I, if, if that is the case, though, I want, you to, I want you to know I have a bomb specialist joining me once again, my friend Suzanne Sherman. Hey, Suzanne, how are you? I've been referred to as subtle as a freight train, so buckle up, everybody. Okay. <laughs> great, uh, by now, the way. Now, for those who don't know, you have your own radio show, the Wasatch Report radio show. Uh, you also have your own radio network, the Cerebus uh, Radio Network. And you write, and you, you speak truth. Um, can I ask you this? I don't think I've ever put you on the spot, but why do you do what you do? What's, what's the overall driving purpose behind why you speak up? I think ever since I was a little kid, I had a very strong sense of, ju- of justice and what is right and what is wrong. And I think I started really paying attention to news, current events, worldly events. When 9-11 happened, I'm ashamed to say that notwithstanding a political science degree, public law emphasis as an undergrad at UCLA uh, and a law degree, I just really didn't pay attention that much. And then when 9-11 hit and I started doing more research, thanks also to the uh, social media outlets and alternative media sources where you can find other than what's spoon-fed to you from the mainstream media, the extent of the lies that have been foisted upon us. Once I started there and looking into our foreign policy and then our constitutional uh, history and what our intentions were, and then going up also, people were uh, giving me some clues as to what was really going on in the war against Southern independence. Starting to learn that bit of history, I felt very, um, I hate to use the term offended, but I felt very upset about how we have been lied to. And not only are we being lied to as individuals, but we are being lied to from generation upon generation to foster a myth about our, our system of government and the way things are run right now. And it goes from the indoctrination early in the years of school all the way through, as I explained in one of my articles, the problem with lawyers and the Constitution through law school. And these people get their training and become our lawmakers and our jurists, federal and state levels. I would say that's a that's a good cause to be engaged in. And you and I have a couple of very relevant topics to discuss today. And and here's one of the things I love about having Suzanne as a guest. She doesn't stake out a partisan line and then defend it to the bloody finish. Uh, You you take a very uh, principled, although sometimes different approach. And I like this. Uh, For instance, we're going to talk about, uh, I guess, which court was it that said that the families from Sandy Hook can sue the gun manufacturer Remington for for liability in in their child's death. I, I didn't. I missed which court it was that handed down that decision. Well, what happened there? This there was a products liability, a civil tort case against Remington arms manufacturer for the incident arising out of Sandy Hook. As we know, we had twenty children and six adults killed. This was a horrific incident out in Newton, Connecticut. And uh, the lower court there in the state of Connecticut had had dismissed the original lawsuit, and re- they relied on a 2005 act of Congress protecting gun manufacturers from liability when the guns are used for the purposes and uh, functioning as they were intended to do. The state Supreme Court 
however, struck down that ruling, saying that the families could pursue with this civil lawsuit. So now this was bumped up to the Supreme Court because Remington was relying on, again, this was a 2005, it's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. It's also known as the Gun Protection Act, and this was signed into law by George Bush. And the purpose here, I'll do a quick quote, was to prohibit causes of actions against manufacturers, distributors, and dealers, importers of firearms or ammunition products, and their trade associations from harm caused solely by the criminal or unlawful use of firearm protections or ammunition products by others. Emphasis here, when the product functioned as designed or intended. So now the anti-gun people really do not like this law because it shields gun manufacturers from what they say is foreseeable harm caused by instruments of war, as they describe the AR-15, whose sole function is to kill people, which they say is an unlawful purpose. And there's a lot to unpack there. We'll get to that, but I'll let you um, continue now with your commentary. Okay. Well, the, I guess the main thing I'm trying to get my mind around is, so does this open up all gun manufacturers now to similar civil liabilities, or does that just depend on the outcome of this case? Well, I think what's going to happen here, the, the immediate effect of the Supreme Court not deciding not to rule on whether or not uh, this could be heard by, by them saying, look, we're not going to stop this case. The, the state really has the right to decide who the cause of action is here. And I would argue that it was of dubious constitutionality to invoke this law in the first place. It's not a violation of the Second Amendment. It doesn't it doesn't um, affect constitutional firearm rights by any sorts of the imagination. But what it does do is by congressional fiat limit who has a con uh, a cause of action against producers of, of items that cause harm. And in this effect, in this event, we're talking about firearms. So what this is essentially doing is returning to the states the, the possibility that citizens can sue firearms manufacturers. Ultimately, if, you're, if you want gun rights and you are uh, against federalism and you're going to see this as a bad decision, the problem is if you roll the dice and go to the Supreme Court, they could rule that, of course, everybody has a cause of action. And this is eventually going to happen. I argued this with national reciprocity as the tide turns and we get more and more anti-gun jurists sitting on the high court. So if I'm understanding you, then turning it back to the states, even though it's saying, yeah, this this case may go forward, is actually better in terms of proper government. In other words, it's it's not trying to put a federal one size fits all blanket approach as, as a solution. Yeah. In terms of our federal system of government, again, where the general government was going to be le very limited in nature, the balance of power being uh, remaining with the states for powers that was never that were never delegated to the general government. Unfortunately, even if you take the federalist approach on this, I see this being also a loser for gun rights, ultimately, because we are seeing the anti-gun climate increase rather than decrease in spite of all the facts Leading to the contrary, we know these people are run by pure emotion 
And uh, it only is going to take a couple judgments for these gun manufacturers to decide to close up shop. One thing I found interesting also was uh, that the general government takes it upon itself to say, you know what, the states should really decide who's going to be liable from a, a tort standpoint for these products when it comes to gun manufacturers. But look at the protection they've extended to the pharmaceutical companies when it comes to vaccinations. Try having them say, well, I think the states should determine whether or not the, um, there is going to be a cause of action uh, for those that are injured by vaccines to the vaccination manufacturers. Instead, they've, they've set up a super fund to pay for these injuries and foreclose the possibility of individual lawsuits against them. Man, it's tough, though, for people to set aside that uh, that immediate gratification of, well, but we need a victory, you know, for you know, for Remington or for gun owners or whatever, without seeing the bigger picture. And again, Suzanne, this is one of the things I admire about you. You are you're a lot more um, circumspect when it comes to approaching these things rather than just that knee jerk reaction of, hey, is it you know, is this going to give me immediately what I want or is, is there something more that should be considered? Well, and this is this is the battle I fought when I tried to with my friend Carl Jones, who co-wrote the article we wrote on national reciprocity. We said that that bill, the proposed bill, was a Trojan horse. And people thought, well, I, I don't care. I'm a here's an example. I'm a trucker and I want to be able to travel around all 50 states and, and be able to defend myself. These are valid points. We should be able to carry a firearm with us and not be whether or not we are a criminal depends on the legislative fiat and what territorial borders we are crossing at the time. The problem is when we seek to superimpose the general government's idea of what is best for us at the expense of state sovereignty, we're going to end up with this being decided by the Supreme Court how these licenses are going to be issued. Wow. This actually could even open up some discussion into a couple other areas of, of states' rights. And uh, unfortunately, we've we got to go to break here in about 30 seconds or so. But um, when we come back, can I? would you be okay with me bouncing some thoughts uh, off of you of concerning a convention of the states? Because I'm hearing, oh, yeah. some, I'm hearing some buzz among my friends saying, well, it's time that we call another, uh, you know, an Article 5 convention. And once and for all, the states assert their sovereignty by rewriting the Constitution. I've got some thoughts on that, but I'm very interested in hearing what Suzanne Sherman thinks about this. Fair enough? Let's go. Okay. If you're just joining us, my guest is Suzanne Sherman. You can check out her website, Suzanne C. Sherman. You can also check out the Cerebus, uh, Cerebrus, I'm saying it wrong, Cere- Help me Cerberus. with it. Cerberus. Thank you. Cerberus <laughs> Radio Network and, of course, her, her show on there. We will take a very quick break and we'll be back right after these messages.
welcome back to Loving Liberty. I am talking with Suzanne Sherman today. And Suzanne and I were just discussing a recent ruling in which uh, a court, the Supreme Court, said that parents of Sandy Hook students actually can go after the uh, manufacturer of one of the weapons used in that massacre, in this case, at Remington. And let's let's talk for a moment about product liability. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard the analogy, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but it's like, well, should we hold a car manufacturer responsible when somebody goes out and drives drunk, for instance? Well, and that's exactly the same thing, but because of the indoctrination about, you know, gun control and and that guns are inherently bad and serve no useful purpose, this is how these these movements gain momentum. Now, when I was talking about this, there's a law professor in an article that I shared with you that he was saying that rather than having this 2005 uh, gun protection uh, act that he refers to it as, we should go back to... I beg your pardon, the 10-year assault rifle ban that was signed into law by Bill Clinton. And as we know, that expired in 2004. And he argues that this ban is not a violation of the Second Amendment. And he cites the District of Columbia versus Heller, a case that is, is touted by gun rights activists as being a victory. And in an article that I have, you can find it again on my website, SuzanneCSherman.com, the Tenth Amendment published it. It's called How Heller Botched the Second Amendment. I say, look, Heller actually opened the door to more rather than less gun control because what he, what Scalia did in his opinion was explain what gun was protected in this ruling instead. And what he should have done was explain that the Second Amendment was just a, a mere reaffirmation of the fact that other than the power to arm the militia, the general government has no power to regulate infringe upon firearms at all. So what they're saying here that because guns were singled out, the AR-15 can clearly be banned by Congress, and he says it should be again. And uh, this is this is really problematic because the purpose of the Second Amendment was to put people on a par with the general government. They were uh, they were afraid that, uh, for instance, Alexander Hamilton would use the army to shock and awe. We've heard that before, but yep. he, they said they use the term awe Americans into compliance. Well, it was just not thereafter before the ink was dry on the Constitution that they marched federal troops into Pennsylvania, absent permission or request by the state governor to have them there to collect a tax. So St. George Tucker, for instance, he wrote a commentary on the Constitution, and here's what he said. Whenever standing armies are kept up and when the right of the people to keep and bear arms is under any color or pretext whatsoever prohibited, liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. Now, how does this relate to this lawsuit? I'll tell you exactly how you alluded to what's going to happen when we turn this over to the states and we see a state by state attack on these gun manufacturers. Well, it's only going to take one or two big judgments to get these manufacturers to fold up. Who's going to be now their sole source, their sole customer, their sole source of revenue? I can foresee this going to the government. I've been saying to people for some time now, with everything going on, you better have everything you think you're going to need, everything you will need, and the ammo and the supplies for it while you can still get it, because it's only going to get worse. People thought, oh, you know what, bump stocks aren't a big deal when Trump decided to ban those. It's going to get worse. We've had the government look into optics. There was an export-import issue, I believe, with that. 
Because I said, wait till they wake up when they realize that these little AR-15 pea shooters are not the problem. The ones that are the real issue are the guns that us hunters own. Well, we can hit someone out five, six hundred yards, even farther. They're going to start coming after the optics. They're going to go after the large caliber, the 7mm mag, you know, the 338 Lapuas. They're going to start coming after this. So if you're quiet when they start banning bump stocks because you think they're not a big deal, you just wait. They're testing the waters. It's going to get worse. Wow. You, I think you are dead on. By the way, I would encourage you, the listener, if you want to join our conversation, do so at 801-331-8113. Again, we're talking with Suzanne Sherman. Suzanne, I mentioned as we went to break that uh, there's there's a growing push for an Article 5 convention to once and for all get the federal government back into its kennel. And I'd like to get your take on this. I, I'll, before I, I put my cards on the table, what do you think of when you hear people calling for an Article 5 convention? You know, every time Congress gets together, they can they can propose the Article five convention, which, as we know, has to be ratified by three quarters of the states or the states can propose it on its own. And I first started getting involved and aware of this situation when I believe it was Kevin Goodsman and Mike Church and some other people put together a proposition in an organization called Compact for America, where it was going to be limited to the single topic of a balanced budget. Now, that is in comparison to what is what is described as the runaway constitutional convention where everything's on the table to that one. You and I were saying, you know, during break, look at the globalists that are going to be the delegates that we send to this to um, to this convention, to this ratification convention. And my point is, even if you have a single limited very reasonable balanced budget amendment. What makes us think that they're going to respect that? They don't respect the constitutional limitations that have been put upon the general government. They haven't. The ink wasn't even dry on the parchment before it started being violated. You know, Justice John Marshall was present at the Virginia ratification convention. And once he became a member of the Supreme Court, he did exactly what was promised wouldn't be done. Again, using the power of the federal judiciary to circumvent and invert our federal system and start adversely impacting state laws. And this is this has been from the very beginning. Wow. Yeah, I I don't trust the the. I don't trust the popu- the uh, the politicians. I don't trust the populace at this point, too. Not because I think people are stupid or evil, but I don't think there are that many people who are versed in the principles of limited government. And so I think well, we, we would end up with and I'll just speak, you know, for for our for where the state you and I are broadcasting from from Utah. The people who would most likely go to any Article 5 convention would be people like Governor Gary Herbert or John Huntsman or Mitt Romney or people <laughs> of, of this um, this caliber. And you know what? I think a majority of people in the state would be like, oh, Brother Huntsman, Brother Romney, Brother, you know, they, they, they would miss the bigger picture again of uh, but what, what have these guys actually done? Well, and the thing is, too, what people when they seek constitutional solutions, they ignore the very effective constitutional solutions such as nullification, secession, 
These are all completely constitutional. They seek to say we're going to simply redefine the power that the general government has, and the general government doesn't care what these limitations are. We have this. We've got two centuries to see that this has been a failed experiment. <gasps> did she really say that? Yes, oh I did. Oh, <laughs> you know, there, Mises published a great article, and they took a, a section out of Albert J. Knox's book on Jefferson, I believe it was from Chapter 5, where he actually explains that the Constitution was an instrument of tyranny. And if you look at the people that were its main proponents, it was the bankers, the financiers, and mercantilists all up in, in the New England area seeking to control the other states. Uh, these were the people that they were trying to control the agrarians. Those that were so busy trying to run their lives, I think they were duped into uh, ratifying this. You know, for instance, was it George Lansing and Thomas Yates? They were from Rhode Island or New York, even New York. They went back and said, we aren't authorized to have a complete usurpation of the articles here. This has been something that was foisted upon the people. And again, I'm of the mindset that it's doing exactly what it was intended to do. But because of misinterpretations, deliberate, I would say, of such uh, clauses such as the Commerce Clause, Supremacy Clause. We're taught in school, for instance, that anything the federal government comes up, notwithstanding whether or not it is in pursuance of the Constitution, automatically supersedes state laws. We need to get away from that because that precludes all talks on nullification. You are hitting one of my sorest sore spots. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to put some salve on it, maybe a cold washcloth. We will be back with Suzanne Sherman right after this. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Suzanne Sherman is my guest. And I would really encourage you to check out her website, SuzanneCSherman.com. And you, your, your show, um, when does your show air exactly? I, I think I might be sleeping now that, I, now that I have a different schedule. I may sleep in, but uh, what time are you on? We are on at 8 o'clock Mountain Time. And it depends on when my producer is available. We aim for three to four shows a week, and we like to talk about things from preparedness, self-reliance to, you know, political discussions that we get on right now. We don't carry water for one party, one particular candidate. We stick steadfastly to principles of limited government, and uh, both sides don't like us for that reason. Which is actually a good sign. I think that's that's a when you're catching heat from both sides, that's a pretty good indicator that okay you may be onto something here yeah it's not good for the bank account but it's good for the soul <laughs> let's let's talk for a moment about uh, again we mentioned we mentioned this uh, uh court decision where a lawsuit can go forward after remington for an ar-15 type rifle that was used in the sandy hook massacre and i i guess that the ar-15 is kind of a favorite target right now in the sense that even though it's not used in in crime you know, but the tiniest fraction of a of a percentage, 
it seems like that's the that's the gun that uh, people in power want to see out of the public's hands. Why is that? Because the the attempt to ban handguns failed miserably. I remember when I was in school, all I heard about again because of the indoctrination that they're trying to impose upon upon school age children. I heard my teachers talk about the Saturday night specials and how dangerous handguns should be taken, and that failed. That failed miserably. And then in two thousand eight, again we had Antonin Scalia, who um, he was correct in saying that the handguns are the most popular gun for personal defense, particularly inside the home. But as I mentioned earlier, he was incorrect in his application of the Second Amendment by saying it applies to a particular type of handgun and not the general government. So because that movement failed, now we found a gun that's equally scary. And because it can fire off, it can have a larger magazine. Uh, Again, the functionality is the same as the handguns that are semi-automatic. It doesn't have we're not talking about full automatic weapons. We're buying into this notion, though, that we should not be capable of bearing arms that are equal in power and effectiveness to that of the military. And we already don't have that capability. You have to go through tremendous loop, tremendous steps and procedures to get. Uh, for instance, uh, suppressors or, or uh, I, you know, fully automatic weapons. And what's happened now is that we've even changed the definition of what these uh, what these guns are. In 1828, for instance, Noah Webster described a, a musket as a weapon that is used by colonial militias as a species of firearms used in war. So this was, it was a given that civilians, meaning the militia, would have the same firearms as the military. What we're seeing now, again, go to, what's where do people get their information? You can go to dictionary.com, you can go Merriam-Webster. This is the example I used in my article, recently changed the definition of, a, of, of an assault rifle, beg your pardon, to the following, and that's any of the various intermediate range magazine fed military rifles such as the AK-47 that can be set to automatic or semi-automatic so far so good but listen to this also a rifle that resembles a military assault rifle but is designed to only allow semi-automatic fire. So this is where they appeal to emotions. We call these evil features when I lived in California. If you had more than two evil features, it can be a combination of an ergonomic stock, um, a a muzzle shroud, a a forward uh, foreign pistol grip, anything like that that changes the aesthetics but not the functionality now kicks it into that category of an assault rifle. Now couple that with the lies that they say that the only legitimate function of these guns is to commit the unlawful act of killing people. Well, not all killing of one person by another is unlawful. And if that's not the case, then please explain to me why these people are so okay with law enforcement or government agencies having weapons that have no legal use. Their argument fails. Woo, that's, no, you're right on. These things are only made for killing large numbers of innocent people. That's why every police officer has one in the trunk of his car. Hmm. To keep you safe. (laughs) Makes sense. No, well, and, and, and actually that's one of the great arguments for, well, you know, 
the police, uh, they can face danger. It's like, yes, they can, but so can a homeowner. Anybody who's yes. been through a home invasion robbery will understand. You could be facing multiple armed adversaries, and unlike the policeman, you don't have the option of speaking into a radio and all of your friends racing to your aid at 90 miles an hour. And one of the reasons, again, behind the Second Amendment was a fear that people would be uh, rendered less able to not only defend themselves from government, but from any assault whatsoever. So the AR-15, I've actually done a show about this. Scalia pointed uh, pointed out the effectiveness of handguns for personal defense inside the home. What people don't understand is the AR-15 is the optimal home defense weapon because it is lighter, it is easier to use. You also have better aim than you do with a pistol. You also have a round that is lighter and less likely to penetrate walls if you're living in an area where there are other people. Say if you have an ACP 45 handgun or even if you're using a shotgun with buckshot. If you're defending a member of your family, somebody comes in and has a member of your family in their control, you're not going to be able to use that shotgun at all. You, with practice and training, can take a directed shot and likely save the member of your family. Well, and and for those who say no, but the likelihood of that ever happening is so small, it will almost never happen. That's, That's what we hope. But but and it's true right up until the moment when it does. The thing is, you you just don't know. But but even then, defending yourself against the common street criminal is only one of the purposes for which the Second Amendment recognizes that inalienable right to keep and bear arms. One of the most important is because it could be the the authorities who get out of control and begin to threaten you or your life or your freedom. And you have to have a means of parity of force to stop them from from doing so. That was one of the that was one of the means by which this general government was going to be controlled, wasn't it? If the if we didn't have a standing army, James Madison, by the way, had said that, you know, standing armies in times of peace were going to be a tremendous threat to liberty, because when we have those, we have increased taxes, we have war, we have debt. And then we this because of those, we devolve from the uh, representative republic to the control of the many by the few. They were, they were absolutely brilliant. They were prophetic in this, assu- in this assessment, and this has proven to be correct. Wow. So how do we get more people to think in these terms? Because what I've said and what you have said, I have no doubt to some people sounds like blah, 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 domestic terrorism, blah, blah, radical gibberish. They, they don't hear it as principles practices that are consistent with freedom. It's really difficult because, you know, the conversation that you and I are having right now is likely considered a fringe element here in this debate because the the traditional notions or where people get their information is going to be from the mainstream media sources where even the conservative outlets are cheering on these red flag laws, which are really going to amount to a system, of, again, of, of social credits. Uh, we've seen people killed now in Maryland. I refer people to the two recent blogs I put Again, on my website, SuzanneCSherman.com. If you go to my blogs, I just did two on red flag laws. And it's only going to get worse, especially when we have these laws coming from the general government, because, again, because 
of the indoctrination we get in the school that the supremacy clause is the, the federal laws are supreme to state laws no matter what they never teach you the in the pursuance and pursuance thereof these laws have to be constitutional to be supreme and what people don't understand is because of the 10th amendment which thomas jefferson said is the cornerstone of this constitution these are issues that should be decided on a state-by-state -state basis where this turns into a no-win situation when it comes to firearms manufacturers and gun owners is again because of the in, uh, influence of leftist court federal judges particularly coming now to adjudicate these issues we're going to see more and more violations on our pre-existing gun rights and people also forget that states have their own constitution. So California, for instance, has no mention of firearms in their constitution. California can ban guns outright if they chose, if they choose to do so. That's not a Second Amendment violation. And to run to the federal judiciary and fight California's firearms laws is in fact a violation of the 10th Amendment. I just told you what Thomas Jefferson thought of the 10th Amendment. So I would encourage people to read a book called Government by Judiciary by Raoul Berger. It's very enlightening. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about another example of how the Supreme Court is dismantling what remains of our freedoms. Suzanne Sherman is my guest. We'll be back after these messages. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. My guest this hour is Suzanne Sherman. Check out her website, SuzanneCSherman.com. You can also find a lot of her writings over at the Tenth Amendment Center, which is TenthAmendmentCenter.com. They do fantastic work if you're serious about uh, freedom and a principled approach to it. I'm telling you, these, these are some folks and some resources you should be availing yourself of. Let's talk for a moment about uh, apparently the Supreme Court is inventing a, a new rationale for which police can stop you do tell well here's an article uh, upi.com they ruled on tuesday that families of the oh wait that's a i'm sorry that was the one about the um here it is i'm so sorry yeah this was just out of the la times and they said that they can uh give police new excuses to pull you over and that, the, as we know, the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. But now uh, we have police need only reasonable suspicion that a law is or has been broken. So we heard some arguments this week that could make it even easier for police to stop and potentially search a car. And a case here in this article stems from 2016 when a sheriff's deputy in Kansas spotted a pickup truck and decided to run the vehicle's license plate. And I'm glad you sent me this because I have a story that's related to this, something that happened to me out here. So it turned out that he had had his driver's license revoked. Now, it didn't show that he was doing anything wrong. They just ran the place, uh, the plates, and he challenged the legality, um, the person that was searched, his name was Glover, challenged the legality, claiming that the deputy made an unreasonable assumption that the owner of the car whose license had been suspended was, in fact, the person driving the car. So Chief Justice Roberts said that, you know, even if they're relying on common sense, they don't have to give you anything more than common sense, and they uphold this common sense inference that he is going to be the driver of the car. So again, once we're, we're just seeing 
more and more examples of the police having excuses to pull people to to pull people over. And something like this happened to me. I was driving from Park City over to where I live and it's a it's a very narrow road and I had a police officer right up uh, Summit County SOs right on my tail. There was a wall to the left of me and a semi to the right. Once I was able to get around, I I got into the slow lane and then I called dispatch. And I said, "You know, if I was driving on a police officer's tail like this or somebody else, I would get a citation. Well, it turned out he got up close to me so he could run my plate. Mm. Why did he run my plate? And, he, and I asked, I talked to the watch commander, and he said, well, they, they thought your tag had been expired. And I said, oh, now we know we've got all the salt on the roads, have to go through the car wash and get these things, get the salt off all the time. I went outside and looked, and I said, it shows 2020 on the year tag, meaning I am safe for the rest of the year. It is obvious that my car is registered. Well, it's a violation to have the month one partially peeled off. I said, you got to be kidding me. Mm. So this was, again, they are out there fishing. They're looking for a reason. I said, the other thing that you guys are doing that is really unconscionable, this is a dangerous part of the road. And there are students, driving students that use this. You are behaving in a manner that is dangerous. It is unlawful for us to do it. For a freaking sticker when it is obvious my car is still legally registered. So we're seeing this happen more and more. And I actually wrote an article about this, um, again, from the Tenth Amendment Center, about how the Supreme Court is is trampling state sovereignty and Fourth Amendment rights. And this had uh, and this had to do with um, warrantless blood draws. We had an incident, as you're aware, in the Utah University, University of Utah Hospital, with that rogue police officer demanding a warrantless blood draw of an accident victim. I remember. Now, I, I, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I have to ask: Was uh, did, did the officer who uh, was following on on your tail was uh, did the officer have a clear view of you? And and here's here's what I'm getting at: um, Women, especially attractive women, get uh, sometimes find that uh, you know. There, there's a great concern about whether or not did they actually signal 100 feet before the turn or signal for two <laughs> seconds or was the license plate light obscure? You get what I'm saying. It's uh, sometimes the, the pretext stop is, is really you know, kind of a fishing expedition. You know, I, I see this where I live on the stretch of highway out on 80 where I go back and forth to Park City from the Colville area. Uh, it, 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 they're predators. They are out there everywhere. They're hiding behind the concrete barriers. They are looking to generate all the revenue they can get. And he came up behind me, so he never had a view of me. I think they just saw the the the, the sticker. Again, half of it was there when it was and that was the month sticker on the left but the sticker on the right that showed i was paid off was still there so they look for an example and i'll tell you what happened to i had some cousins visit me from out of state from california and there was a police up there was a state trooper had a vehicle pulled over my cousin changed lanes and then changed back. You know how you're supposed to slow down and move over uh-huh. well this same this same officer pulled him over 
And he said, I'm not sure what I did. I pulled over and I, I changed lanes to give you more room. And the officer said, ah, but you didn't use your turn signal. So he gotcha. checked out, <laughs> ran for warrants, did all this. And then he even admitted, we're actually just out here looking for drugs. So this is civil asset forfeiture. This is looking for drugs. Also, remember, Utah just lowered its blood alcohol, the legal limit, to 0.05. So if you can get somebody on a speeding violation, say you smell alcohol and get them for a DUI, that is going to bring a lot more revenue into the Utah state legislatures than is a regular speeding ticket. Or if you're carrying the devil's lettuce and they can take your car and money and everything else you own. Okay, as long as we're going down this road, then I, I have to get your take. I just I made the mistake of watching a video. I, I watch these videos with my, my kids, especially my kids who are old enough to drive, because I want them to understand you have rights and you do not have to consent to a search if they're asking, you mind if I look through your vehicle? You know, there's, there's a right way and a wrong way to handle this. And one of the things that, that just vexes me is when the four-legged warrant generator comes trotting around yes. the car. And, well, the dog alerted. You know, we have to take whose word for it. Can the dog tell me? No. And these dogs false alert, I think, 89% of the time. I actually saw footage also where a dog did not alert, and the officer gave him a harsh correction uh, with a, a, a jerk on the chain that they had you know with regards to these these cases also with the warrantless blood search um i mean with the warrantless blood draw and i just want to bring this in as we run out of time the conservative darling justice thomas said that hey you know what if somebody's out there driving on the freeway it doesn't matter if they're unconscious or conscious we should be able to get their blood they want your blood without a warrant and I, this is where conservatives got so mad at me because I said, hey, you know what? I'm with Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Kagan on this one who joined the dissent. And this is what they said. When the aim of the search is to uncover evidence of a crime, the Fourth Amendment generally requires police obtain a warrant. The warrant requirement is not a mere formality. It ensures that necessity judgment calls are made by neutral and detached magistrates and not by the officer engaged in the competitive enterprise and enterprise of ferreting out a crime. Now, people were upset because these are liberal, liberal Supreme Court justices. But Thomas gets a pass for violating the founding principles. But because the wrong guy, the wrong president put these people on the bench, we're going to disagree with them Hell with logic. Hell with common sense. It's it's mind boggling. Okay, so we're we're down to about a minute here. Um, let's let's end on what whatever positive note we can. How do people fortify themselves against falling into this mind trap to where oh this is okay or this makes me safe? What do you recommend they do? Does it start with personal study? Does it start with more civic engagement? Does it start with voting? Do tell. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm voting with a Sharpie this election. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go Ugh, when I when I draw that line. I'm, I'm so serious. You know, it's about it's about keeping an open mind. It's about keeping an open mind that what you have been taught may not be real. The real one that slaps them in the face is when I talk about the Pledge of Allegiance. They think if you 
say the Pledge of Allegiance, the words of the devout socialists who came up with this, one, to sell flags, two, to indoctrinate children, that we have one nation indivisible in direct contravention to our founding principles. Keep an open mind. If you can open your mind to that, you can open your mind to what we're really supposed to be doing right now. I love it. Suzanne, tell everybody again the name of your show and where they, where and when they can hear it. The Wasatch Report. And if you go to SuzanneCSherman.com, there is a SoundCloud bar. You can hear our downloaded shows. Follow me on Facebook as well. And that will get you over to links for our shows. SuzanneCSherman.com also has a donate button, okay. uh, which would really be helpful. Thank you. Let's talk again soon, my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.